Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 288 of the Fun with Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or episode 22 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the future owner of Uncle Chris's Fish and Chips franchise, Chris Faroche. Hey, Chris. Coming to a high street near you. Hi, Robin. How are you? <laughs> Very well. I know. I'm excited. I love a good basket of fish and chips, so... That is something I am anticipating, absolutely. With salt, with salt and vinegar, or are you uh, more of a ketchup man? Uh, well, I think I'm more of a ketchup man. Oh, I am, I am an American after all. But <laughs> I, I will, I will certainly. Uh, all kidding aside, I will venture with you to a fish and chips franchise and eat it as the Brits do to see what it's like. Oh, it's got to be wrapped up in paper and. Uh, infused with the said uh, malt vinegar and, and uh, salt and then it's delicious you can have a little bit of brown sauce with it if you if you need a if you need a ketchup type it's always enticing when the sauce is not flavor not named by its ingredients or you know somebody but by its color that's always you know that's <laughs> always encouraging sauce. It's, it's, it's it's basically a tangy tangy sauce think barbecue sauce almost okay fair enough it, right, should we move on? <laughs> well, why not? It is Monday afternoon, and Chris and I are going to talk about the Azerbaijan Grand Prix and the Indianapolis 500. Yes, I am late by a week for the Indianapolis 500, but I have a very good reason, and that reason is I was able to secure interviews with the four-time and just recently current champ. Wow, that was butchered. Uh, Elio Castro Neves uh, and I got a chance to talk for a few moments. And then I also got a chance to talk with the team owner that won, Michael Shank of Meyer Shank Racing. So I have two interviews that are going to be part of this podcast later on. And uh, it, they were just great conversations, especially with Michael Shank. So um, that's going to be coming later on in the podcast. But I think we're going to start with the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Chris, how does that sound to you? Sounds good. Yeah, it was, um, it was a chaotic uh, weekend in Baku. It was. You know, we got news on Friday that Mercedes was struggling. I think they were, what, P11 and P16 after free practice two on Friday? And then we just had a absolute crazy qualifying session. Well, yeah, I mean, a quarter of the field crashed during qualifying, so it's a pretty good place to start. <laughs> Four red flags, which matched, I think it was the 2016 or some not that long ago, Hungarian Grand Prix of red flags during a qualifying session, uh, you know, highest ever. Yeah, we had uh, Giovinazzi and Stroll crashing at turn 15 uh, in Q1, uh, neither of, of which uh, were able to set a time. So that was a pretty interesting start. Um, and then uh, in Q2, Danny Ricardo crashed at turn three. Which After probably, he did set a time. It, yeah, that's him, right. That was good at least. Yeah, but uh, probably cost Sebastian Vettel an opportunity to, to get into Q3. So he was lamenting his luck there. And then in, in, uh, in Q3 itself, uh, most drivers did a first run. And then we had the synchronized crashing at turn three with Sonoda and Carlos Sainz managing to lose it, which was quite amusing. It was. <laughs> And, and that uh, ended the session. That was it. So which once again out. gave the pole to Charles Leclerc. Leclerc, Ferrari's antics of of stealing pole positions is just getting out of hand, wouldn't you say, Chris? 
Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was a mighty fine effort by Ferrari and, and uh, Leclerc, considering no one had really thought that Ferrari would have much of a, a chance uh, in Azerbaijan because of the nature of the track with the very long straight. So, so they did a they did a good job to set the car up. It's certainly to be quick over one lap. Yeah, and it was Charles Leclerc, Lewis Hamilton ended up in P two, Max Verstappen third, and Pierre Gasly, he was fourth in that Alpha Tauri Honda. So extremely strong showing from him and then uh, the second Ferrari Carlos Sainz uh, topped out the top five but it was a chaotic one and aside from all the crashes the other thing that stood out to me was the dichotomy of performance between Valtteri Bottas and Lewis Hamilton. We're now into the third race of 2021 where Mercedes haven't been, been able to manage to get the tyres to work properly. Um, we had Botas struggling in Imola. We had uh, Lewis struggle in Monaco. And, and it was Botas's turn again um, in Baku. And they actually went on slightly different setups with Botas going with a bigger rear wing to try and get the tyres to, to come up to temperature. But it never worked for him over the weekend. And he really had a, a very anonymous race weekend, both in quality and the race. Um, Whereas Hamilton was somehow able to get performance out of the car, um, and getting you know ahead of Verstappen looked key really uh, before the race started. Uh, given that the Mercedes was the quickest down the straight, it looked like it could be a key advantage. Um, obviously, it didn't work out that way. But yeah, a really lamentable weekend for Bottas. And then also um, to, to pick up on your dichotomy theme, I mean Perez also sort of underperformed a little bit in qualifying, only qualifying seventh. They got promoted to sixth with Norris's penalty, um, but still, again, not quite where you would expect the Red Bull to line up, given that they did seem to have the quickest quickest car. But I think they were affected, and in Perez's case, quite considerably by by Sonoda's crash. Um, and his coughing fit halfway around his flying lap. <laughs> um, and then, of course, Verstappen uh, was ruining his lack of a toe, which helped uh, Charles to get pole position. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, there were some, some interesting performances. I mean, we had Ricardo struggling as well. He was down in 13th. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of uh, different performances within the same team, no doubt. Absolutely. And, I mean, you mentioned Yuki Tsunoda getting into Q3, qualifying eighth that was that was an impressive run no no two ways about it yeah and he lined up ahead of Alonso who was uh quite vociferous in his uh in his condemnation of all the crashes and and was basically advocating that uh there should be penalties handed out that if you if you shunt in in a live qualifying session um that you should get an automatic penalty and I I can kind of see his point to be honest you know if you put a time in and got somewhere on the grid and then you go out and just throw caution to the wind and lose it, then maybe you shouldn't get to keep your, your, your first run effort. Uh, maybe that's something to, to consider as we continue to tweak the quality rules over the years. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a fair point. There's logic to it. It is a bit surprising because not only do you have a qualifying position that you get to keep, but you're, you're very very likely, not just potentially, but likely to be hurting someone's qualifying effort through no fault of their own. So exactly. it seems it seems a bit backwards that you can qualify, crash, and then potentially reap benefits from that. And and that that was my jest about Ferrari uh, 
with Carlos Sainz crashing just to secure <laughs> Leclerc's pole, which I did not mean seriously, but Leclerc was on pole at Monaco, then crashed. Leclerc is on pole at Azerbaijan, and then Sainz crashes. If, if we see too much more of this, we're going to have to start scratching our heads a bit, a bit further, <laughs> I think. Yeah, the fact that Sonoda had already blocked the track, I think, uh, prevents that conspiracy theory from going too far, though. <laughs> yeah, well, the fact that Ferrari got uh, AlphaTauri on their payroll, I mean, this runs deep. So <laughs> what did you think of Ricardo's performance? He crashed out. Uh, Ricardo had had really good run in Spain and then a bad run in Monaco, and then we can skip ahead to Sunday if you want, but qualifying again was disappointing and i you know lando on pure performance put in a p6 as you said before he got the penalty yeah i think it was same same as really he's still struggling with the car nothing there's nothing transformational between monaco and and uh, azerbaijan so he had the same same issues you know you could see uh, in his crash that uh, he just just doesn't seem to be totally at one with the car yet, right? And so to match Norris's uh, pace, uh, who's been in, in that McLaren for two seasons, is, is, is obviously proven to be a challenge. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything new there. I mean, the, the where I think there was sort of uh, progress of the, the, the guys that have come into the sport or switched teams um, is obviously Perez performed better over the weekend. Uh, Alonso outperformed Ocon. And we'll get on to Vettel. I mean, Vettel had a, a stunning race. So those guys all seem to be making progress, but you can't say the same for Daniel, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. There's one more thing I want to bring up. Uh, Ferrari's qualifying pace seems to be quite strong. And we have we have both Ferraris in the top five at Azerbaijan. It's a street course, but it's a street course with a, I believe it's 1.4 mile straightaway effectively because turns 16 through 19 are flat and there's a lot of benefits in a strong motor here is my point and it seemed like on qualifying pace at least ferrari was right there or do you think they just got super lucky with toe because you know that was a really strong pace but then obviously leclerc's race pace in the early parts of the race you could see he just could not keep up on the straights with the top performance and and got passed fairly easily. Yeah, I think it's a combination of factors. Certainly, um, they benefited, certainly Leclerc benefited from the toe and got a bit lucky that Hamilton uh, helped pull him down the straight. But I think also they set the car up to be quick over one lap. So they went for a skinnier rear wing, lower downforce to give them to offset their lower power uh, power unit. Um, but the, that comes at a cost, right? So their tire deg is increased because of that low downforce setup. So they're basically the cars moving around more through the slower medium speed corners and therefore their tire degradation is higher um, and therefore their race pace isn't as good. So they, they, they obviously went intentionally down that path, which is also what Hamilton did to try and get some pace out of the Mercedes, but uh, better sort of balance and compromise, I think, between one lap and race pace for Hamilton. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it was... a. Uh, I think you can see there's definitely progress being made at Ferrari. They're getting stronger. I mean, I certainly think the sport is better off for having Ferrari, you know, qualifying in 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 the top ten and and certainly the odd pole position and battling for podiums is is a good thing. And Charles is uh, obviously, you know, we all know how talented he is, and he's able to to make the most of it when when the, the opportunities arise. So the race started. We had a little bit of excitement at the beginning with uh, Leclerc being passed and 
who was who was jockeying around for what positions, but it largely Max Verstappen got in the lead, got pretty comfortably in the lead. Lewis couldn't couldn't respond. Oh, I, I think, I, but you jumped a, you jumped a little further into the race than I was expecting. I mean, the thing that you talked about conspiracy theories. So what mm. helped? What helped uh, Verstappen get into the lead? Well. Hamilton, obviously, Hamilton and Verstappen and Perez all, all passed Leclerc early on. Right. Hamilton pitted on lap 11. The first ah, the slow pit stop. And he had a slow pit stop. Why did he have a slow pit stop? Because he was held because Pierre Gasly, who drives for AlphaTauri, which is the sister team of Red Bull. What do you reckon that that was a strategy intentional by the Red Bull uh, hierarchy to, to uh, in, uh, slow down Lewis's stop? Because it was about two and a half, three seconds slower than Verstappen stopped. Now, Verstappen was quicker on his in-lap. But uh, to me, it looks like Red Bull are using all of the, of the weapons at their disposal to try and stymie Hamilton and Mercedes, which is but, smart. Potentially, uh, yeah. I mean, that would, uh, that would take... I mean, they would have to get it just right in terms of timing, which... They do. Obviously, <laughs> it's, possible, it's clearly possible to do. But, yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating... That's a fascinating um, argument to make. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, potentially, why not? I mean, if you have those cars at your disposal, and especially if it doesn't hurt, and clearly it didn't hurt Gasly's performance, yeah, that that's all for the good. And, I mean, something I was going to bring up, you know, we quickly, after that first stop, we got into this position where Hamilton was uh, not only behind Verstappen, but Perez as well. And couldn't really do much about it. So Red Bull had a lot, uh, a lot of resources to control the race. And Botas was, I mean, he was just buried in the mid pack throughout all of that and could not, could not help. And that, to me, that stood out. Yeah, I mean, clearly the Red Bull was was quicker. Uh, even even with Hamilton's uh, lower downforce rear wing, Red Bull was quicker over a lap and took. Uh, could uh, maintain enough of a gap not to be under threat from a Hamilton with DRS. Um, I mean, I think the key point you touched on there was Perez. So he, as we talked about, he, he started sixth, but very quickly was able to dispatch uh, Sainz, Gasly and Leclerc, um, and then was quick enough to be able to also overcut Hamilton in the pit stops, um, which then gave Red Bull the perfect situation, a one-two controlling the race, uh, Perez, uh, as you said, wasn't wasn't looking like he was going to get passed by Hamilton, and and so therefore Verstappen was able to control the pace with with protection from his teammate, which is what Red Bull have been you know crying out for for some time. And finally, race six of 2021, we've got a number two driver who was able to deliver the performance that they wanted, and and that puts the, you know puts them in a in a really strong position. Of course. Um, it didn't work out that way because we started having tire failures or, or punctures. Um, but at that, at, you know, about halfway through the race, it looked like that was going to be the finishing order: Verstappen, uh, Perez, Hamilton. And Hamilton wasn't really uh, able to do anything about it. And I think, you know, let's before we get past halfway point of the race, let's say let's let's discuss this just a little bit. I thought that given. The time it takes to get used to a car, new car, get used to a new team, especially Red Bull Racing, that I think Perez is delivering. Just as you say, he was he was P2. He was keeping Hamilton at bay without much trouble. You know, I, I think that in terms of expectations, 
given that, given all the circumstances, that Perez is is performing at a at a very reasonable level. I mean, I don't think there'd be any reason for Red Bull to be upset with him anymore. Well, I, I agree. He delivered in Azerbaijan. And uh, you, I think Red Bull have come out and said that he's outperforming where they expected him to be at this point. Um, so clearly he's meeting their expectations. I think the, the key challenge for Perez is to continue to deliver that level of performance for the balance of the season. Um, we don't want this to be a one-off, do we? Or oh, certainly the Red Bull team don't want it to be a one-off. He needs to deliver this level of performance, and, and especially on tracks where it's more evenly balanced or maybe where Mercedes have a quicker car, he still needs to be putting it comfortably in the top four and ideally for Red Bull ahead of Bottas, right? Or even better, ahead of Hamilton. But that's this that's the level Red Bull want him to be at, which is causing problems for Hamilton and the pit stop strategy for Mercedes and picking up the win if their number one driver doesn't finish. Right. Um, so the race was going along, and uh, to me, it was actually remarkably quiet considering everything. It was like, okay, right. so we, you know, we were getting championship implications, things like that. The one bright spot for me was Aston Martin's performance. Um, Vettel put in a really good first stint, a long stint on soft tires, maintained high levels of performance on that used set, had a good quick pit stop and put himself in a good position. Stroll was going even longer on those tires and I believe was getting ready to pit. He may have even been pitting on the lap that he ended up having a tire failure and right into the wall. And that just opened up a whole bunch of interesting uh, new dynamics to this race. Yeah, I, I mean, Straw was making a great recovery drive from, from his starting position, which was uh, 19th. So, um, and it was a left rear puncture. Um, the circuit would, the, the nature of the track would suggest that the right rear should be more heavily loaded than the left rear. Um, Pirelli have already indicated that they think he picked up some uh, some sort of cut on the tyre. Um, that's what caused the failure rather than the wear uh, failure. But yeah, it was uh, it was over rather suddenly and nothing he could do. And uh, yeah, it brought out um, a, bit of a bit of a mix-up in the order, certainly the lower order, didn't it? Yeah, you know what I would have done? I would have uh, slowed the car down but not crashed into the wall. That's what I would have done. So... <laughs> Okay. I mean, if we're just going to talk about what what should have been done, that's that's what I would have done. So if mm, if you disagree, okay. if you think the wall is a better choice, then that's you're entitled to your own opinion. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's quite sudden from the onboard. He didn't have have a lot of warning, did he? And it just oh, turned yeah. hard left on. And him. I mean, he was he was near two hundred miles an hour, if not at two hundred miles an hour. By the time he might have been, it was farther. It was closer to the beginning of that straight away so maybe it was more like 180 but i obviously still plenty quick is the point yeah the threw a yellow flag it bunched up the field things like that and uh it was like okay well this might make the race result a little bit more interesting and then <laughs> we had a second tire failure from the lead and uh, that just opened everything up with the red flag of the race itself uh so what did you make of that yeah, Verstappen was very unhappy at that point, wasn't wasn't he? I mean, the the picture I sent you of him kicking the, the Pirelli tire, yeah, yeah, uh, was was pretty. Uh, it spoke a thousand words, really. And 
yeah, he was hugely frustrated um, and thought his, you know, he was going to have a big deficit to Hamilton in the championship because even if Hamilton had finished second at that point behind Perez, you know, it would have gone from a, uh, um, a plus four to minus fourteen points for him, which uh, on a on a Red Bull friendly track was going to be a problem. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, as he said post race, I mean, this is. is the, you got to you got to cash in while you have the car, and it was certainly a missed opportunity, and through no fault of his or the team's really. And so he was he was hugely frustrated and, and was doubting Pirelli's uh, initial assessment that it that he'd, he'd run over something and cut the tire. So I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny in the in the Pirelli report into the tire failures. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it looked at that point. Um, it looked like you know Hamilton had uh, all his Christmases had come at once, didn't it? He was. We had. We then got a. We had a couple of laps to go, and Hamilton had a front row uh, grid start, and uh, it looked like it, it, you know it was at least going to be an eighteen point payday for him. Yeah. So as I as I understand it, it was three laps to go. They did a lap like their formation lap counted, so it was two la- two laps to go with a standing start, a second standing start. And Lewis Hamilton actually had a a strong launch. It seemed like he had the better of Perez from a dead dig at the starting line. And he had the inside line. And he had the inside line, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Vettel was right there as well. He had a good start. But that's where it seemed like Lewis could very well take the lead of this race, potentially. But then... Uh, obviously, that didn't happen. So, uh, one th- we did see a lot of smoke coming from Hamilton's brakes leading up to the standing start. So, what I want to know from you is, who is to blame? Because, obviously, this isn't Hamilton's fault in your eyes. Did Nico Rosberg do this? I mean, who do you blame for this? <laughs> well, when you, watch, when, when, when you watched it live... It just looked like a rookie error, didn't it? It looked like a, a driver who got too excited, got on the brakes too late, locked up the fronts, and went down the escape road. Um, well, and if you listen to his radio, it, it kind of sounded like that as well afterwards. I mean, he right. was extremely well, apologetic. Yeah, so he's taking the blame, but it's not quite the reason you might think. So it wasn't what I just described where he got on the brakes too late. It's that he flicked a switch on the wheel, which Mercedes turned the magic button. This button is designed Oh, magic to, brakes, yes. Well, what they do is they put the brake bias onto the front axle, and they do this on the warm-up lap to heat the front tires. Apparently, he turned it off as he, as he rolled up to his grid spot, but then, in error, uh, re-engaged that mode uh, on the run down to turn one. Apparently, uh, in, as he was avoiding Perez's slight move to the left... They think he activated this this bias button again, and so he essentially had no rear brakes, and everything was on the front uh, when he went to brake, and that's why he locked up and, and went long. So he is accepting that it was his fault, but he's not. He's saying it's because he accidentally knocked this button rather than just getting on the brakes uh, too late. And in fact, if you watch the onboard, there is left hand. I don't know exactly where this button is on the wheel. But his left-hand position is quite curious. He, it's actually on top of the wheel at the start. I don't know if he gets better clutch control uh, with that hand or, or what he's doing. But then he shifts the hand to a more traditional sort of left-hand position. 
And I don't know if at that point he's, he's fat-fingered this button, but to me it seems like this button is in probably a too prominent an area if you can knock it with your finger while trying to steer. I mean, that seems like a bit of an oversight. Absolutely. Um, but, that, but that leads to the next question, though. How long has that button been there? And if so, why has he not hit it any other time? Do you, do you well, see what I, I'm getting at? That's right, yeah. If it's that easy to knock, why didn't he do it in some of the manoeuvres with Verstappen at the start of the race at Imola or in Barcelona? I mean, yeah, there's no doubt it was 100% Hamilton's fault and he missed an open goal, right? At the very least, he was going to get, you would expect, second place. And given what you just described with his good start and the inside line, he should really have won the race. So he's lost out on 25 points, which in a very tight season, that could be that could be massive, especially 25 points on a circuit where they were struggling the whole weekend. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge miss, no doubt about it. And so such a surprising one. You know, that's the first time he hasn't scored in something like 54 races. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, massive. Uh, and what it means to the championship is that, you know, we're, as you were, four points separates Verstappen and Hamilton. We go back to Merce- more Mercedes-friendly tracks uh, from here on, yeah, starting in France. But but yeah, it was, a, it was a very surprising incident. And coming on the back of his lamentable Monaco Grand Prix, yeah, not, not an ideal couple of weekends for Lewis, for sure. Yeah, and now uh, they are 26 points behind Red Bull Racing, Honda, Mercedes is. So... Yeah, not not ideal. <laughs> On the flip side, right, it gave us a great podium. We had Perez, uh, uh, Vettel, and Gasly. All three had done a fine job and, and earned those uh, those podium places. And the interesting thing, uh, it seems like that at some point, Red Bull thought that Perez's car was going to break down due to a hydraulic failure. So they were really worried um, that he wasn't even going to finish the race. <laughs> Instead, he ended up winning it. So, well, yeah, well, and he didn't. He did, his car did not make it to the podium, the car podium, as it were. They, that's they right. had him stop the car right away, as yep. after the race was done. Yeah, they they were keenly worried for sure. And Gasly is also saying that he had some sort of power unit issue. Um, so it was, and you could argue Honda quite fortuitously got a got a one three. But I mean, you know, they they. They uh, deserve their bit of luck. Um, and certainly, I mean, Gasly had a fine weekend, very feisty, great qualifying position and was battling. I mean, his, his battle with Leclerc to hold on to that podium place was one of the highlights of the race for me. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It was great racing, absolutely, because uh, Leclerc got him on the straight and that, or uh, the first part of the straight and Gasly got him right back and then defended for the second shorter straight, which was also a DRS zone, defended. So... You know, it was it was really good racing, but we can't also we cannot discount Vettel's performance. I mean, you know, P two in that Aston Martin, considering everything we've seen, you, you just have to say hats off. And now Vettel had gone from not yet scoring a point, still being mired in the back half of the mid pack, to all of a sudden a fifth place and then being second in on the podium. I mean, that's a fantastic turn of events for the last two Grand Prix for him. Yes, I mean, after his horrible, horrible 2020, um, and, you know, he didn't have a great start to his career at Aston Martin, did he? But now he seems to have come alive, uh, certainly in the last two tracks. And, you know, he had a great, great pace, ran long, as you mentioned, on his on his first set of soft, uh, was it soft tyres? I'm not sure, yeah, but whatever yep, his soft. first set. Yeah, and uh, was able to, to do the overcut and then made some on-track passes. 
uh, to get himself up to fourth before we had the, the, the red flag. And so, yeah, I mean, he, he really, you know, did a, did a sort of old Sebastian Vettel performance, all that being that, you know, the Red Bull days where he used to dominate Grand Prix. I mean, it really, um, to get second, uh, you know, and there's no doubt the Aston Martin isn't the second quickest car. It's probably not even the fifth or sixth quickest car. That's quite an achievement. So congratulations to him. Really amazing turn of events. And, and let's hope it continues. Yeah. And there was one thing I noticed about Vettel. Now, obviously, I wasn't there staring the whole time, so I can't confirm this. But based on all the camera footage I saw, when the red flag took place, everyone got out of their car, started having discussions with the engineers and all that kind of Vettel never moved. Vettel stayed in that car the entire time, sat through the red flag in the race, inside the race car, as far as I could tell. Maybe at his age, it's hard to get in and out. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Seeing how he's... Um, only a few years younger than Lewis Hamilton. Um, so, yeah, it it was ultimately an entertaining race, uh, though we got more than half of the year in entertainment in the last uh, several laps of that race. And But it, was, it had serious implications for the 2021 championship. Well, I don't know, did it? I mean, if, if, if uh, Verstappen had finished... And the order had been what you would expect of Verstappen, Perez, Hamilton. I think that would have been that would have been uh, maybe more uh, greater implications for the championship. I mean, as it is, four points is nothing, right? And uh, we've still got uh, sixteen Grand Prix unless Singapore's replaced. I mean, that's quite big news. We haven't touched on that. Singapore Grand Prix is cancelled for twenty one now. Yeah. We, the last two races, Mercedes have struggled because these are slow street courses. And the Mercedes have been very patchy in Singapore the last few years. They've had some really awful races there. Um, so I don't think they're going to be crying that Singapore's gone for 21, quite frankly. And if it's not replaced, then that definitely swings the pendulum in Mercedes' favor over the balance of the season, potentially. Yeah, I think uh, I, should be, I should clarify just a little bit. You know, championship implications ultimately weren't huge, but there were two big swings in the championship just in the course of that one Grand Prix. It's just happened to be one swung one way and the other one swung mm-hmm. it right back. Uh, and then and it ended up back in the middle again. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. But for the Constructors' Championship, Red Bull did pull, did pull a gap. And uh, that is, that's more than nothing, certainly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when's the last time Mercedes was second in the championship? Uh, probably 2013. Well, last Grand Prix. No. I mean, they entered this they entered this race second in the championship. Okay. Down Before by 2021, point. but you got to you got to go back. <laughs> got to go back a Listen, while. Listen, you got to give me my, my pedantic monuments, Chris. <laughs> there you go. Pre pre my son, you have to go back to was the last time Mercedes Benz were losing in the constructors championship. So Right, right. Um yeah, I, I think certainly Mercedes need to find out what's struggling, what, what's causing Bottas' struggles and get him back into the, into the game, uh, certainly the race for top four. They can't go through weekends where he qualifies at the bottom of the top ten and finishes outside the top ten. That's just unacceptable. With, you know, he's thinking there's something wrong with the car. And there was a great um, anecdote I heard from Julian Palmer of the weekend where you know, he, had, he had a struggle in the Renault one race and, 
and the team was saying, you know, what's going on? Why are you so slow? And he said, oh, it's got to be something wrong with the car. And, and eventually, uh, a couple of days after the race, they noticed that an anti-roll bar had been installed the wrong way around. And they were like, oh, you were right all along. <laughs> so maybe Botas is hoping for that type of discovery uh, because, um, yeah, it, it was, a, it was a, a weak race. But as we talked about, they've, um, you know, Hamilton's had his struggles too. So they've got to, they've got to solve this fundamental problem of getting the tyres into the right operating zone. Yeah. Uh, or this is going to continue. Hey, one other thing I wanted to mention before we finish on, on that race was, sure. did you notice the Mazapan-Schumacher incident at, on the last lap? Yeah, well, real quick, though, before I actually had a point about Botas I wanted to make, and then let's okay. get, go to that, which was Botas, if you just look at the results, it looks like Botas just had a dismal couple of races, but I think it's, we because I was saying to myself, oh, Botas looks to be in real trouble here, but then you have to remember that... Uh, Botas's struggles in Monaco were entirely not his fault, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it was Azerbaijan. It sounds like he played a role and could have made better decisions to uh, to have a better race car. And then his race performance seemed a bit milk toast. But it, you know, let's give him a Grand Prix or two to kind of get resettled, refocused, and hopefully have a stronger car again before we pass too much judgment. And I'm kind of giving myself that talk as much as I am anybody else because I was I was I caught myself feeling pretty down on Botas until I kind of rechecked myself and remembered these things but it is weird isn't it um, how they've swapped roles in the last two races even though the nature of the track and the fundamental issue of the slow corner performance is is sort of at the root of the of the struggles what well, i mean you if, if hamilton struggled so badly in monaco you would think that he would have the same issue in in baku and yet they completely swapped and 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 i didn't think it was possible to get any worse than hamilton's performance in monaco but somehow botas managed it in baku so it is <laughs> it is really weird what's going on there um absolutely but so I'm sure Schumacher. Is spending a lot of a lot of time trying to figure it out yeah so we yeah. had um we had the Has guys, and, and the good news for Has fans is that they finished um, in 13th and 14th places, which, even though there, there aren't any points for that, means that they move up to 9th in the Constructors' Championship uh, ahead of Williams. Um, but um, in the process of finishing there, they almost, uh, Mazapan almost took both of them out and, and actually incurred the wrath of Schumacher. I mean, essentially, we're on the last, last lap, firing down the straight. Schumacher gets a run on Mazapan. So Mazapan jinks right and almost puts him in the wall. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's st- staggering that he would think about doing that to his teammate on the last lap over 13th place. I mean, that is a shocking state of affairs. <laughs> I'm not sure I would say shocking. It's bad. <laughs> I, you know, I'm certainly not arguing that it's a good, good state of affairs, but I, I can't say I'm... Uh, listen, Mazapan has developed... Uh, a reputation, and he's just, in my opinion, living up to it. Yeah, I guess you're right, but I, <laughs> but it, it's it's a pretty pretty sad situation, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to imagine how, of all the billionaire boys that are in Formula One, he's going to last very long doing that type of thing. You'd hope that someone like Gene Haas would say, you know what, I can find some money from somewhere else. You know, go go and race something else. I can hope. I can hope that that's the case because, yeah, I'm I'm disappointed with it, certainly. You know, you and I have had several conversations about any car talent versus Formula One talent and all this kind of stuff. But this, I mean, come on. This is just 
you know. It's pretty rank, isn't it? Yeah. Stroll, Stroll, Lance Stroll, he has that same status, ultimately. But Stroll has also led races. Stroll has finished on the podium. Stroll has... Pole position. Yeah. Pole position. Stroll has put in performances where you can you can make arguments for Stroll. And mm-hmm. uh, and again, he was he was performing well. He was well into the top. I think he was fourth or fifth when he had the crash. Again, he hadn't had his pit stop yet, but he's performing well. So yes, he's a billionaire's son, but the performance is there. You can argue. Mazepin, right. it, it's <laughs> it's not there. Hey, and while we're talking about the rookies, as Sonoda bounced back and had a strong weekend, uh, you know. If we ignore the crash in Q3, I mean, it was it was a pretty strong weekend. He did did all right in the race. Uh, apparently, they're putting it down to his move from England to Italy, um, and uh, and that the team can keep a closer eye on what he's up to. Apparently, they got him in the gym twice a day now, but uh, it seems to be working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey. No. Absolutely. And you know, we saw we saw potential in Bahrain. We saw reality come in the next few Grand Prix. But you know, it, obviously performance is there skill is there and uh hopefully he can just stay consistent and not try to keep overstepping yeah let's hope so so that was all i had to talk about so we had we have just completed 105 runnings of the indianapolis 500 it took a year off from being in may it was in august last year but it was in may again it was with a, I think it was like a third or half full stands. There were 140 some thousand people at the race, and uh, and it was just it was just another really really fantastic event. Um, Scott Dixon started from pole position, and uh, at the first part of the race looked to be really strong. Um, but if if you have any opening thoughts before we get into the race and the first pit stops and all this. Uh, Please go for it. No, no, you carry on. So uh, it was a great race start. We had, you know, feisty behavior from Colton Herta and Scott Dixon. Scott Dixon was happy to um, give up the lead as long as he stayed with, with the front. And things were going, I'd say, more or less by by the book for Scott Dixon until, um, I hope, I, Stefan Wilson. It's um, right. Um, oh God, I can't remember his first Justin Justin Wilson's the late Justin Wilson's younger brother, um, yep. Stefan, and who whom I've met before. He's a he's a really nice guy, and anyway, he had trouble with his brakes, locked up going into the pits for his first pit stop, ended up spinning, and uh, causing causing a yellow flag and closing the pits, of course, and. That was right at, right at the point where everyone was gearing up for the first stops. Fuel tanks were running very low, and that threw a proper that threw a proper curveball to a lot of folks, a lot of teams in racing. Um, not least of which was Scott Dixon, who ended up having to do an emergency pit stop. They're called while the pits were closed. He had to come in to get two seconds worth of fuel come go back out and he had to stop again but when he stopped um the car shut off and he couldn't restart it and all of a sudden uh scott dixon the leader of the race 
was a lap down and having to come up with an alternative strategy. And Scott Dixon wasn't alone. That also happened to Alexander Rossi. So once that took place, we had a whole lot of interesting strategy going on in addition to strong racing throughout the Grand Prix, throughout the 500, excuse me. So what did you what did you think of those opening that opening portion of the race? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting how clearly the leader of the race looked like he was just, you know, creating a nice big uh, hole in the air for everyone else. It looked like nobody really wanted to lead, did they? I mean, there was, uh, there was certainly some, some weak defences uh, for the lead early on, and people quite happy to to try and uh, save fuel and run in, you know, second or subsequent positions. Um, I... You know, you mentioned Dixon, but Rossi also got caught out by that same incident and running out of fuel uh, during the Wilson pit lane closure. It's interesting to know that there are limits to Dixon's power, that apparently he does need a running car to win the Indy 500, um, you know, and he does need fuel in it. (laughs) (laughs) So there's hope for everybody else. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was... I think you talked about strategies. I mean, right up until late in the race... um, you know, there was a group, the Rosenquist, Hildebrand and, and Sato, all who could have got lucky with a caution flag. And it would have been a very different result. Um, as it was, the guys who pitted uh, a little earlier and had enough fuel to last the distance ended up, um, you know, taking all the all the victory uh, positions. But, but yeah, I mean, you didn't really know who was going to win right until the end, uh, did you? And it was... Um, it was run at quite a pace. It was the fastest 500 in history, over 190 miles per hour average speed, which is incredible. That's right. And that, that was despite, you know, there were, there were cautions. Obviously, the 500 always has cautions, but there, there still were a few cautions, and it was just largely a clean race. The incidents were minor, and they could keep going. Um, you know, and there were a few uh, difficult ones. You're like, oh, that's really a bummer. You know, Graham Rahal was one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. He was he was in a very strong position, doing well, and he caused one of the yellows because as he was coming out of the pits, he spun and hit the wall. At first, it looked like he had pushed too hard on cold tires. No, one of the tires fell off, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that caught. And you could he was really because he he felt like he had a strong car, and I think he really liked his chances for the 500 uh-huh. this year. And uh, you could see it as he got out of the car. I mean. You know, pounding pavement, and uh, so there were those kinds of incidents that happened. And you know, Stefan Wilson's incident in the pits that ended up happening to several people, where there was just an issue with—I don't know what it was—if the brake pads were getting knocked back, or if the brakes were getting cold for some reason, and they couldn't keep heat in the brakes. But you would have brakes not responding, not responding, not responding, and then locking up. And that, that ended up happening to several people, including, um, oh, oh God, uh, Simone de Val- Silvestro, um, and her uh, largely, uh, f- largely female team. You know, it was female owned, female, not all female, but largely female team. Yeah, I mean, did they? Did Wilson? Was it a brake issue, or did he just get on the brakes too late? Well, I never really got to the bottom of was it his mistake, or was there a mechanical issue? I, it, that's, I never had confirmation one way or the other, but his own reporting was he got on the brakes plenty early, no response. Pumped him, mm. no response. Pump, pump, no response. Then he got a lockup. So mm. that's that's what happened, and it seemed that, that that issue happened to several people. So 
we had multiple people deal with the same issues. Um, engines quitting and then not refiring when they're hot. That happened to Rossi and Dixon. And I think one other, I, I can't remember whom though, but that seemed to be largely tied to Honda engines more than more than the Chevrolets. And then brakes just not locking up. What What I don't know is if they were getting that poor response because they weren't maintaining brake temperature the proper way as they were racing. Because obviously the Indy 500 is not a place where you're heavy on the brakes, but there right. probably has to be a little bit of brake maintenance going on that, uh, you know, gives you brakes when you need them. In maybe, those they need a magic, maybe they need a magic button. <laughs> <laughs> a magic button that's right next to the shifter. <laughs> right. And you want it to, like, look and feel just like the shifter, so it's super easy to... Yeah. yeah. No, I, so it... it but the, the fact of the matter is, for an old-school IndyCar guy like me, there was just lots of entertainment, good racing entertainment, throughout the 200 laps, two-and-a-half-mile two-and-a-half-mile race course, 200 laps for the 500 miles. And we had a lot of people that, at different points in the race, looked to have a real chance. Um, one of them was um, uh, uh, oh, Connor Daly. Uh, mm, Derek yeah. Daly's son. Laps, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, he led several laps and was doing well, but then he just got the way yellow flags and everything fell. He um, had some issues. And then it wasn't actually the way yellow flags fell. Um, I'm I'm in, I'm remembering now. The wheel that fell off of Graham Ray Hall's car hit. Oh, it hit his nose, didn't hit it? Hit his yeah. nose. That's right. And I thought it was off the uh, off, off the aero screen, but but yeah, it damaged the, the front of the Delara, didn't it? I, yeah. And it, when you when you saw when you saw Connor's car parked after the race, mm-hmm. you could see it, it, that that was noticeable damage. That would that would not be. Ideal for coefficient of drag, I'm sure, and um, yeah, also wing and what, a sc- what, a, what a scary moment though when you see him collect the the, the rear wheel. Um, Absolutely, yeah, and and that's sort of where you realise um, the necessity of having a halo or aeroscreen type device. It really just provides that additional protection for that type of incident. So, yeah, another you know after um, after the uh, Grand Prix last year where we had Grosjean. Uh, demonstrate the halo this was another good example of why it's really necessary in open wheel racing to have these types of uh, protection devices that's that's absolutely right and we saw penske was not really ever in it like you expect penske to be in it but there were still strong performances from the penske drivers um uh, will powered started near the back i don't think he was dead last but he was he started somewhere in the 30s and uh, he he was running really strong, got into the mid pack, and uh, even even ahead of that, he ended up running. He ended up finishing thirtieth at the end, but he was running really strong early on. And um, Simon Paginode, uh ended up finishing third. Would have been on the podium if there was one, but um, of course we have to talk about Elio Castroneves being the fourth driver to win the Indianapolis Five Hundred four times. Yeah, amazing. I mean, that battle uh, in the closing laps uh, with Palou Castroneves' award, and then, as you mentioned, Paginot uh, joining it really late. He, I think he got award in, in, over, through the last turn, didn't he, to, to snatch third place, was, was really great. And it looked like uh, 
Palou was going to go on and win his first Indy 500, but Castroneves was a bit too wily for him, wasn't he? Yeah, and I think you could tell that the two were close enough that they could pass each other in the draft. So it was a matter of getting the timing just right so that your pass was the last pass. But what complicated it was all the back markers. And, and Absolutely. They, there was, what, at least four or five cars that they, they, they suddenly just sort of appeared out of nowhere with about, what, a lap and a lap and a half to go. And I thought, uh-oh, this is going to slow... Uh, Elio up and and he's going to be susceptible to being passed here by not just one or maybe a couple of cars but somehow he managed to maintain the pace uh, not get caught not get tripped up by the back markers and hold Palou off it was it was a great drive to the finish unbelievable drive he was he was a crowd favorite and he drove masterfully well and he joins AJ Foyt Al Unser Sr. and Rick Mears as four-time winners in the history of the 500, and he is the sole winner of the longest gap between his victories. So right. he won in 21 two, years. Well, yep. 21 years overall, but even between his third and fourth. So he won in 01, 2002, and 2009, and then hadn't won until this year. So 12 years in between his third and fourth victories. So the fact that he could just keep going and keep going and keep going. But you're absolutely right. The span of his uh, year, because Rick Mears was 20 years. Um, so uh, Rick Mears and Castro Neves are tied in terms of the gap between their first win and their last win, because um, Elio was 2001, now 2021. But Elio, he's certainly the only active driver with four wins, and um, I know that he wants to keep going. So, uh, <laughs> and, and that's 31 IndyCar wins as well. And now he's tied for 10th in the all time list with uh, uh, Paul Tracy and Dario Franchitti. Um, so, and uh, he does that at the ripe old age of 46 years and I think 20 days old. Well, he was so, hope, so that really, Robin, what are we doing on a podcast when we can get out there <laughs> and winning the Indy 500? Well, I'm young yet. <laughs> I'm young yet. I, I, I still have, I still have plenty of time. Uh, but, uh, you know he's he's uh he, you're exactly right. His birthday is in May, and uh, 1975. So, yeah, and he he we you already heard in the immediate post race, Michael Shank of Meyer Shank Racing already said Elio will be back for the 500 next year. That is promising. So, you know he's he's still making attempts. Um, and in fact, Elio himself is already planning for next year. And I know that because I talked to him. I was part of this small group of journalists that got a chance to get on a virtual um, Zoom meeting with Elio. And I was able to ask a few questions. And here they are. Elio, huge congratulations. You were really angling to get this win. You were really excited to get in the car when I saw you at Mid-Ohio just a couple weeks back. And here you are. You've done it. My, My first question to you is, how much time passed, be it hours, minutes, or seconds, before you started thinking about that fifth Indy 500 win and how you're going to target that? Well, I think uh, I'm allowing myself to uh, enjoy a little bit of this moment first. Uh, but the work started already. Right after the race, uh, talking to the engineers, talking to Mike, talking to the team manager, we are like, oh, look, if we got to do it again, we got to start thinking about now. And, and it's true. So we already 
thinking about it. Don't get me wrong, because we're planning. And uh, but um, yeah, I think we should. Uh, everyone deserve uh, a time off in terms of uh, enjoy this moment because it's important. It's important for everybody feel great. Uh, uh, it's important for everybody to uh, charge the battery because the month of May definitely wears on everyone. Even though we're not in the month of May, but still have like uh, all the races before. So uh, they, they should, everybody should allow themselves to uh, uh, to enjoy the moment. I know you had a really long and really successful career with Penske, but um, here you are, your first year completely separated from that team, and all of a sudden you've got two marquee wins under your belt this year. How does it feel to been, you know, released from that team, unleashed from that team, and then just so quickly have so much success? Does that change your perspective? on uh, your experience with that team in any way? Well, I have to say, I mean, I spent 20 years uh, plus with Team Penske and it's like a family, you know, they raise you, they take care of you. It's a, it's a good combination. And now they set you free. And just like when I don't have a, my kid's not a teenager, as she's acting like one, but I'm assuming that's what's going to happen in the future. You set them free. I feel that that's what's happened, and uh, joining with, uh, with with a great group like Mike and Jim, uh, what happened is it was just like wow, we can do this together. So winning the race, the, the Daytona 24 Hours at the beginning of the year, and winning the Indy 500 now, yes, it's a proof that you know what this is is possible. I can do this. I, I, that's why I want to do it. That's why I didn't want to stop. Because I want to follow my uh, my instincts, my my guts. The same way you hear Mike saying, "Like, look, uh, this is what I uh, what I intend to do, and keep it going." It's the same way. People have that kind of thing, and you just gotta follow. Plans change, yes. You just gotta adapt. However, um, at this point, I I'm so glad that uh, I was able to have myself believing and, and good people behind me. Uh, give me the support to make this happen. Your last Indy 500 win, Elio, was in 2009. So what did you do to just keep your belief going that you could still win this race, even though you had to wait more than 10 years, you know, 12 years for that fourth win? Um, I was waiting for the right opportunity. Um, and Mike gave me that. Uh, in fact, every, I mean, and I'm not saying just here because we won the race, but I mentioned that even before. So, Mike, we have a good car. And Mike said the same thing. We have a good car. So when we when we felt that, I was waiting for the right opportunity. Imagine. And I understand. The last three years with Penske was great. But remember, they have uh, uh, four other guys. And when you start sharing the car, not full-time in the championship, you know, sometimes things not coming to, to your way. And uh, – and I do believe there was the opportunity that I need to make that happen. And what a great style we started. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah, bye-bye. I mean, the other thing is, it's not, we don't need to think about next year and Elio Castroneves. We, we can think about him for the you know, five races in the remainder of the 2021 IndyCar uh, series. Uh, so he's going to be out uh, in a second uh, Marshank car, right? Uh, partnering. Uh, his British teammate. Um, so we'll see if he can add to his IndyCar wins uh, this year. That's right. Yeah, he'll be with Jack Harvey for uh, five Grand Prix, not 
the Detroit Grand Prix, uh, the duel in Detroit, if I remember correctly. But he will he will be in several several indie races um, going forward in the latter half of the season. And yeah, I I couldn't be happier for Elio. And again, very you know, thank you to Elio for taking a few minutes to chat with us again. I've now interviewed him twice for this podcast, and it it's been it's been great to just hear his level of energy and passion being so rock solid and consistent as it has been since the year 2000. Um, Elio Castroneves got the Penske race seat that was originally headed for Greg Moore, mm-hmm. uh, the late Greg Moore. So, uh, you know, he, he, that's, that just gives you a sense of where Castroneves how long he's been in the sport that we're bringing up, we're bringing up something like that. And, uh, um, but his, his passion for driving is just unparalleled. And he's just, he's, he's always, he's always just extremely pleasant to speak with. And, um, I appreciate his time. Well, then he hasn't lost his fence climbing ability either. I mean, <laughs> his nickname is the Spider-Man for that reason. And I, I saw that, that that tradition started at the 2000 Detroit Grand Prix. That's that's because well, he was just trying to get into the event. I think you're fine. <laughs> to do <the> victory. <laughs> well, the Detroit the Detroit Grand Prix was his first win. It was his first win, and it was just this instinctual thing to just start climbing the fence and and. Uh, that's that's how it all started. So that's actually, I suppose you're right. That was the second time he climbed the fence. He had to climb the fence to get into the event, and then <laughs> climb the fence again because he'd won. And maybe he was trying to get out before the traffic hit. Maybe that's what it was. But then he realized he still had to pick up his trophy. It was it was quite remarkable scenes. I don't I don't think I've ever seen quite so emotion displayed, not just by the driver, but but the other teams and the other competitors um, and his own team after victory. I mean, I guess. You know, that was Maya Shank's first ever win, right, in IndyCar, let alone winning the big one, the 500. Exactly. Um, so everyone was probably, uh, and, I, you know, it's just a good news, it's a great news story, isn't it? You can't be, you can't be upset when a team makes a breakthrough like that, you know, with one of the most popular drivers, you know, in the sport, you'd have to say. And it took uh, a good 30, 40 minutes to even get his post-race interview because he spent so much time climbing fences and hugging drivers and team personnel and everything. I mean, you know, and it was noticeable how quickly all the Penske drivers came up to their good friend and former teammate to give him congratulations. That was notable to me. Yeah, and you had Mario Andretti, who was somehow in between the two walls that <laughs> separate the track from the pit lane. Yep. I think he might still be there, actually, but... Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it was wonderful to see that level of outpouring of, of joy uh, for his for his win, especially in front of that was the biggest. You mentioned the 130, 140,000 spectators. That was the biggest crowd that's been at a sporting event since we've had the pandemic. Exactly so I think, right. You know, it was like a just sort of a start to return to normality, wasn't it? And it was great to witness. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I didn't get to say it in the interview. Um, and my mom was slightly disappointed, but um, to Elio Castroneves, my mom was watching, and my mom was very, very happy that you won. She was watching with me at the end, and that's important to point out. Um, yeah, that level of just joy and how near universal it was. I mean, even Simon Paginode was like, yeah, it to be so close and not have the win, had I had just a couple more laps, it would have been fantastic. But 
Elio, you can't, you know. And even Alex Palau, Alex Palou was like, yeah, it was it was a great great race, but to lose to to lose to a now four time champ, I can't can't do anything but congratulate. I mean, so even the person that finished second to Castro Neves was just like, yeah, you you can't deny the moment, basically. Absolutely. So there was another person that really couldn't deny the moment, uh, and that was Michael Shank, of the team owner of Meyer Shank Racing. Uh, he and I had a chat uh, just the next day after I spoke with Elio, and we talked for a few minutes about his process to getting to where he is now and you know, questioning whether we should really think about Meyer Shank Racing as a small team or not. So here's that. Michael Shank of Meyer Shank Racing, uh, Penske, Chip Ganassi, Andretti, none of those guys won the Indianapolis 500 this year, and your team did. Is that because smaller teams can do well at the Indianapolis 500, or is that because people don't realize that you are every bit as um, well-equipped as the big teams, and people just don't know it yet? Um, So with regard to the size of our team, I mean, yeah, for years and years, we're the kind of regarded as the little team that could. But, you know, to be honest with you, in, in personnel size and, and revenue size, we're probably toward the top three or four teams now in IndyCar, to be honest with you. I have a just incredible group of uh, partners, sponsors, and uh, partners in the business. And um, it's mostly because people just don't know the true story, what's going on behind. But you know what? I run the company and the team and the guys that work for me run it like we're still a tight, small team, meaning we're efficient. We don't overspend, or at least we try not to. Uh, we consider everybody's respect and we respect people that work for us. And, and we still operate it as a smaller type team. Uh, the fantasy that this is a little team anymore, unfortunately, is long gone. And trust me, there's a lot of good things that came with that. But um, it's great when you look at it, you know, swinging like we were at the 500. You know, like I truly believe Jack Harvey would have finished fifth or sixth after starting 20th. He had a great car. Um, so, you know, we've come a long way. We still have a lot more to learn and, and to be better at for sure. This particular day, on this particular month, we kicked ass. And I'm extremely proud of my group for pulling together and um, putting it on, leaving it on the track, I should say. I look at you and the way you operate and the way that you've ascended into multiple racing programs with success um, in both IMSA now and IndyCar. And I get this just repeated over in my mind. You, you seem like a trust the process kind of guy, like really disciplined and like you have a plan and you follow it. Is that, yeah. is that the case? Yeah, it really is. And, and if, if you would ask me how, how have we been able to do this starting out as a smaller team, I would say that is the root cause of that. Meaning, you know, when Jim Meyer came on board in 2018, you know, I had a plan. He bought into the plan. It was a progressive but very conservative financial plan. And everyone bought into it. And I believe it's uh, serviced very well. And even the way we're bringing on the second car right now, uh, it's to the same model. So I don't like change. I don't like to let people go. I don't like to, you know, when we get something, we know it works. We, we you know, we, it's hard for us to get off that. So, our world is a bit upside down now, to be honest with you. With this win, it's it's kind of changed everything. Um, still the same guy, 
I'm still going to go to a bar tonight and drink Bush Light. Still going <laughs> to clean the uh, toilet out of my RV when I have to. Uh, nothing's changed <laughs> there. But, uh, you know, uh, at the core, we're s- serious racers with good, very good smarts about it, I think. And we can uh, run a business on top of that. So um, just total thanks to the team and partners and that kind of thing. Well, I, I actually, it's interesting. I wanted to get to that kind of maybe even almost too much success too early, but I wanted to first really celebrate the moment that you had with Elio after the checkered flag flew. He stopped the car. He did what he had to do, went up, ran up, climbed the fence. But then you joined him, and you were there side by side having like this real genuine moment. The entire crowd was going crazy. And it was just so heartening to me to see the combination of an international racing driver, Brazil, Brazilian, obviously road course rooted race car driver, and then a good old Midwestern boy, just like myself, teamed yeah. together having this success you have. What was that, what was that moment well, like I, for you? I, I can tell you exactly what it was. It, if you look at a couple of those pictures, I think the one I saw that moved me a little bit, and I forgot we had done this, that he had come off the fence, I come off the fence, and we were both kind of kneeling at each other, kind of hugging. And, you know, in that moment, I just, I just thought, here, these two people needed each other. And mm-hmm. in a broad sense, mm-hmm. we both needed each other for certain reasons, for our own selfish reasons in a lot of ways, but we, we both needed each other. And we came together at the right time in the right place, and, perf- and it was perfection. And uh, I think that's us just being thankful more than anything, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this was Elio's fourth Indy 500 championship, his fourth win. That's been obviously a big, big deal. He's talked about wanting to get the fourth win since 2009. And here he, here he does it with you first crack. And we were just talking about trusting the process, but the process didn't say you're going to win the thing first shot with your second driver, right? So how, how does that throw things off? Because are you kind of like forced to shift some things ahead or are you trying to resist those temptations? How do you handle that? No, no, we have a, we have a, you know, for, for, for 2021, we have a six race deal in place and that's probably what we'll end up doing next year. You know, we'll talk about that shortly with everybody, but we're working on that pretty hard. As you can imagine, we have a lot of momentum right now. Our partners are extremely happy. I, you know, you look at the television numbers and you look at my exposure that uh, Elio gave our sponsors for the last, and it's still ongoing, to be honest with you. Um, we, you know, we're super lucky, you know, um, and we have a lot to, I think we can bring value to any, uh, any partner that comes along. So we're trying to figure that out right now, but we'll stick to the plan just like we talked about. Yeah, trust the process. And me personally, I've, I've always been enthusiastic about Elio Castroneves. But he is one of the more senior drivers out there. Age is always discussed. And, I mean, you obviously had faith in him. But what was it about him that gave you that faith, that commitment to make a deal with him? Well, listen, we, we, wanted, to, we wanted to find someone that would enhance the whole program. So who could come in and ha- help Jack? Uh, or, you know, Jack could learn something from him. And, and, Jack Harvey was part of this process. We talked to about him, about the people we were talking to. We let him have a voice because it was important to me that they get along. And 
and work together and do the team stuff, right? Which is not easy. It's really not easy. Um, but I think if you if you just we're numbers people, right? I mean, I didn't go to college, but I understand math. And when I look at results and what Elio has been able to do at the Speedway over all the years, let alone win it three times before we did this, um, I mean, there's a guy that could be helpful. And as long as the passion was there, which if you know Elio, that that's never left the building ever. <laughs> never. Um, so you know we were in a pretty good spot. Now, listen, did we think we were going to win it? We knew we had a shot. Uh, we had a better than even shot. We thought, especially about I don't know a week and week and a couple days ago after last practice. I mean. Um, well, the eighth place we were, qualifying was very encouraging, well, I'm sure. And that, and that was just the beginning. I mean, that, the, the better part of that was what happened that night. We did a two-hour practice session. Elio ah. did two 30-lap runs, two 30-full-tank runs, and he was awesome. And he said, please don't touch my car. Leave it alone. And we didn't. That's awesome. And uh, he won the race. And, and, and it's just his, his methodical, technical work he did for the last 30 laps should be good out in textbook history on how to – race the final 30 laps at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Yeah, and timing the passes um, with Palau and the whole thing. I mean, it was... It was it's, it's that, but it's much more. It's understanding the strengths and weaknesses of what you got and being able to read what's coming. Oh, sure. And uh, understanding where you're, you're at at all times. Yeah, okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, you've talked about Jim Meyer um, on multiple occasions, and rightly so, helping you supply the resources that you need to, to build the team. Um, what about you've, – you've had a longstanding relationship with Honda now. What about that yeah. part of the equation, that partnership? Well, that, that's a whole conversation. I mean, I'm on uh, working year six with them right now. I started in 15 and prototyped with them and then did the NSX program, a factory NSX program, for four years, which of which we won two championships for, them. and now we're back in prototype with them again. The amount that Honda, HPD, Acura helped us, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you where to start. It is tremendous, and we are dead loyal to them. You don't see our group doing uh, Honda here and Chevy over in prototype and something. You know, we recognize that they took a chance on us early, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing by the way. Spread yourself out, but for us. Where we were at the time, we chose the path to stay dead loyal, and we really think it's paid off dividends. And um, and we're proud to say we're part of their family. I know we're part of the family. John Akeda, who runs Acura in North America, he is as big a car guy as you'll ever find, and it's really changed the direction, in my opinion, of Acura in general. Absolutely. Yep. And um, these people, I'm just I'm just eternally grateful to, and they know it. And um, there's been a couple chiefs at HPD since I've been there now, and they all buy into how MSR races. Um, they let it. They 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 celebrate when we have our good times. They understand when we have our bad times, and we always stay the course. And, and that's uh, irreplaceable in my book. Well, and it, it can't hurt that you're an Ohio boy, and they have the facilities they do in Ohio. Um, that's right. So, I we spoke earlier this year had a great conversation and I joked about you starting a formula one team next. And you told me that that was hilariously not funny, but my, my, my honest question to you is where, where do you, how do you grow from here? What you have a process is where, where is the end point of that process or at the next, the next step at the very least? Yeah, listen, what we want to do, and Jim and I agreed to this a long time ago, we want to be a two-car, full-time IndyCar with the 
baddest ass prototype program also uh as a parallel program running out of the same shop that's that's our ultimate goal and so you're still committed to imsa sorry to uh, interrupt you're still committed to imsa yeah you know i I just said this to jim france today without jim france this team is zero nowhere and i i can't over emphasize that. that that's the headline actually Jim France has put his arm around me and my wife and this team back in 2004, shoved us along when we needed it, made us stand on our own when we needed it, always, always gave me the best advice, always available to me for anything that I needed. And without him, this simply doesn't happen. So for me to turn my back on him willingly is never going to happen. He is uh, the greatest guy, the most inspirational story. Um, I actually love the fact that he's running NASCAR, even though I'm sure he's probably about worn out now. But and that's the that's the bottom line. So the sports car program will will be there as long as we have a proper program to run. And um, and I'm proud of real now 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 we need to go to Le Mans and win overall. It's more important to me for a legacy more than ever. Ah uh, yes, of course, of course. Yeah, and Le Mans is absolutely a special place. I mean, the Le Mans is the big one of the big three. You know. Right there with the it Indianapolis we 500. Ran, we, well, we ran in P2 in 2016. We qualified fifth in P2, and we finished ninth. And um, that wasn't bad. And um, we did that as an independent pro-am driver setup. And it was okay. a great experience. And But now, when we get to go back next time, it'll be for the overall win. And uh, that is just the thought of that just is just incredible. And uh, uh, we will work, you know, when that time comes, whenever that is in the near future, uh, we'll we'll bust ass on it. We'll uh, fly all the principles we use here over there. And uh, when that time comes, who knows how any how many Indianapolis 500 championships you'll have under your belt? Um, <laughs> Michael Shank, of team owner of Meyer Shank Racing, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Really, really happy to see your success and to see your plan come to fruition. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime. See you later. Goodbye. Yeah, so the thing that struck me from that interview um, was was his uh, desire not to go to Formula One, but to go to Le Mans and, and win the, the whole race, presumably with Honda. I mean, he talked at length about his uh, affinity and, and, and alliance and loyalty to Honda. So uh, I don't believe Honda's won at Le Mans, right? We've got Mazda, I think, and Toyota is the only Japanese OEMs to win at, at Le Mans. So that would be yeah. that'd be quite a story. And, of course, he's won. He knows how to win 24-hour races, having won to, Daytona back in uh, 2012. So that, right. that'll be fascinating to watch. Absolutely. And to see, just to see, you know, Michael Shank is a is another, you know, similar ultimately to Penske and Ganassi and Andretti, you know. Andretti's slightly different because Andretti was 91 IndyCar champion. Uh, Ganassi and Penske weren't big-time uh, drivers per se, but... Um, Michael Shank, you know, he was a pretty serious race car driver before he switched to becoming a team owner. And, you know, he's, you can, you can see that he's just really, he really loves being a team owner and building, uh, teams. And he's, and he's done so in a very, very impressive way. I mean, he started off in IMSA. He still is in IMSA. He is now racing one of the Acura prototypes that were formerly Penske cars, and he's got now the full one-car IndyCar team with Jack Harvey. Elio Castroneves is doing um, five more races 
Although he did he did leave the door cracked just a little bit that Elio might be in more than five um, this year, and uh, you know he wants to build to eventually become a two full time two car full time team and do things just as you said, Chris, to get into Le Mans, and he has this interest in diverse motorsport entries and being very competitive in all of them but the difference between his goals and many other people that are into motorsports he's he's got a really well laid out plan to achieve that it seems i i think he's one of the few people that can do it i think he can eventually blossom into being a penske ganassi level guy so i'm interested they it seems that there's some sort of um, collaboration with andretti autosport uh, that dates back for as long as he's been in IndyCar, um, so back in 2017, and yeah, a technical um, relationship. Yeah, and and Andretti had a really awful 500. I mean, they didn't have a car in the top 10, and so it's interesting that sort of through that connection, they they had some success. And I don't know how deep that relationship goes, but I mean, that's very shrewd to align yourself with one of the you know the big players out there and and um, you know help get to the top maybe a little bit quicker by learning some of their tricks. But, uh, yeah, it's, it was an interesting result with with some of the smaller teams really coming good on the day and uh, shading the likes of Penske and, and Ganassi, although, of course, they still finished second and third with Ganassi with Palou and Paginot with Penske. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, Ed Carpenter was up there uh, in fifth. Um, you had Dreyer and Reinbold in seventh. Um, and McLaren with two cars in the top ten. So quite an unusual um, lineup, really. Not the not the n- normal suspects. Well, uh, and, and the big players dominating. And Pato was fourth, so one of the McLarens in the top five. And um, that's right. and yeah, that's absolutely right. And there there's another thing, another uh, thing I wanted to point out. Elio Castroneves, you pointed out his age already. Palou is young. Simon Paginot, he's he's near, if not forty. Sorry to be aging you, Mr. Paginot, if I am, but it, it, I know he's close. Um, Ed Carpenter, I think he's in his 40s by now. Um, Montoya, he's, uh, I think, just a few months younger than Castro Neves. Tony Kanan, he's right there. So we have a lot of guys, and Tony Kanan was 10th. We have a lot of guys well into their 40s proving to be very competitive. And I remember famously Mario Andretti raced an IndyCar until he was 54. And it really, to me, just gives you a real reminder that racing drivers and the racing the racing window in terms of professional driving has gotten to this age that is borderline criminal, that they're st- you're starting so young and then getting kicked out still relatively young because clearly these guys have plenty of speed. Yeah, I mean, doesn't... Mario still pedaled a two-seater IndyCar at some events, and he does it reasonably quickly. I mean, I don't know if he's but, done it this year necessarily, but yeah, I mean, and he's eighty, so yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah, you're uh, absolutely right. I, I mean, just the G-forces alone uh, at that age uh, must be must take their toll. But but he's you know it just shows. The, the, the huge passion he's always had for motor racing in any form of it. Uh, you know, Mario is an incredible, incredible guy. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we had these these very experienced drivers, you know, three of them cracking the top ten or four of them, if you're going to include Pagenaud, is, is great. Because the top 
rookie was way down in 20th place. Dixon, with no fuel, was able to, to come in 17th. So, yeah, the rookies uh, struggled a little bit. Um, so it, it proves that experience is, is key to winning or competing at the 500, or at and, least it was this year. And that was something that, you know, Michael Shank said in the interview is just everything that Elio was doing in the last 30 laps of the race was just spot on perfect. Just how he was engaging with all the different attributes of the performance of that car to maximize it. And, you know, those are the type of th- types of things you learn with experience. And you can even see that with the delta between Rossi and Scott Dixon. Rossi, um, they both ended up a lap down. Rossi charged through some of the field to try to get his lap back faster than Dixon did. But Dixon, let me just triple check that I'm correct about this. Dixon ended up finishing way ahead of Rossi because he played a long game over the course of the full 500, uh, full 500 miles. So Dixon finished 17. And Rossi finished 29th. So, mm. you know, though it's it's obviously Rossi is a plenty capable driver and Indianapolis 500 winner himself. But just those that level of experience that just plays a critical role. So, great great race. Really 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 happy that it was put put on like that. And super grateful to Meyer Shank Racing to give me the chance to interview not only Elio Castroneves but Michael Shank as well had those great conversations. So, uh, uh, thank yous, very big thank yous to them. The next race that is on my radar is going to be the Detroit Grand Prix, which is coming up in just a few days' time. And I'm going to work hard to do a lot of coverage for that. And then we've got some Formula One coming too. Uh, Chris, what what Formula One race are you looking forward to? Are you looking well, forward to France? One. No, I'm not. I, I can't say I particularly <laughs> like uh, that track, to be honest. Uh, but uh, Silverstone's a personal favourite, of course. Um, I was going to just mention before we leave IndyCar, though, how the standings have, have become oh, quite please. interesting. Yeah. Yes, uh, uh, Palou is now leading the championship uh, with 248 points, and Dixon's tumbled down to second with 212. So a pretty handy lead of 36 points. And then O'Ward is third on 211, so nipping at Dixon's heels. Um, and so, where is Jimmy uh, Johnson in that championship? <laughs> Jimmy did a fine job as commentator. Comment- yeah. Commentating, yeah, <laughs> and it just looks like that's the natural spot for him, doesn't it? It, it, <laughs> it, 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 I have to say, it did. It looked more comfortable, and it's so. <laughs> he didn't I, spin once, did he? Not well. No, he might have in that chair. Uh, there were, <laughs> I, you know. Uh, you know, we'll we'll have more to talk about at the Detroit Grand Prix because Jimmy Johnson will be back in the car. Um, but yeah, well, we've got France, Austria, and um, I think wait, I'm showing an Austrian doubleheader. Is that correct? Oh man! Yeah, they added a second Austrian Grand Prix because we lost Turkey. Um, right, which was replacing another race that I've even forgotten what that one was. So yeah, because oh, we're we're starting to lose Grand Prix. Uh, they're, they're adding. We might have a, a two Silverstones again this year. Um, I guess Austria twice worked out last year, so they're seeing if they can repeat the trick. But uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd rather them just reduce the calendar size. I don't know why they, they're, they're trying to maintain this twenty-three. Well, uh, they're trying races. to replace Singapore, Chris. I know. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. So just let's have a twenty-two or twenty-one races and have them, you know, proper proper Grand Prix. How about fifteen? 
Yeah, I mean, seriously, I mean, I, this... 16 was the classic number back in the day, wasn't it? And yeah. that was certainly when I was, when I started watching this sort of 90s, early noughties era, 16 Grand Prix was more than enough. And uh, I don't think I'm okay with a few extra. 23 seems excessively. Well, and the goal with Liberty Media is 25. Yeah, so, it's too many in that. Yeah. But, but. Uh, yeah, um, we'll see what we get. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Uh, it being our home Grand Prix, I hope to land um, some more interviews and uh, have some, have some, you know, uh, a little bit more of an inside analysis of some behind-the-scenes things. But we we shall see. Um, there's one more thing to discuss, and that is my most recent YouTube video. I was in Texas last week and spent uh, a lot of time with a lot of Toyotas, but. That was highlighted by getting um, to ride shotgun with Ken Yushi of Toyota. He is a pro drifter, and he is not only a pro drifter, he is a fantastic, just incredibly great ambassador for Toyota, had a lot of knowledge about the 2022 second-generation GR86, which is replacing the Toyota 86, which is also known as the Subaru BRZ, for Subaru, and it was originally the Scion FRS when it first came out in 2012. Ten years on, there is a second generation of this car, and uh, I got a ride along with Ken Yushi, and it was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me, not Ken Yushi, Ken Gushi. Ken Gushi is the Toyota Pro Drifter. My apologies. And he is a fantastic ambassador for Toyota, and we had this really lovely chat about the car before we had the lap in the car. And then we we continue to have a lovely chat about the car while he was in the car going sideways around several corners of Eagle Canyon Raceway, which is about an hour outside of Dallas. And it was just a wonderful conversation and turned into a great video, if I don't say so myself. Um, if I do say so myself, someone is saying so. I'm saying so. Um, so anyway, please go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash Robin Warner to check that out. Um, but until the next show, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, you're the Ken Gushi of podcasting. Thank you so much. <laughs> Two different forms of single-seater racing in one pod, eh? <laughs> thought it could be achieved? Man, walking and chewing gum at the same time. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.